Hello and welcome to the MIT Press Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Gondek. And today I'll be speaking with William Clancy about his new book, Working on Mars, Voyages of Scientific Discovery with the Mars Exploration Rovers. William Clancy is Chief Scientist at the Human-Centered Computing Division in the Intelligence Systems Division at NASA Ames Research Center and Senior Research Scientist at the Florida Institute for Human and Machine Cognition. William Clancy, thanks so much for taking time to talk to the MIT Press Podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you very much, Chris. You know, the general public gets to see photographs and data from the Mars Exploration Rovers, and right now the rover Curiosity is sending back some really amazing images from Mars. But this book is less about what the rovers collect and more about the people and processes behind their mission. How would you describe what this book is trying to achieve? Well, that's right. The the book is is really about the scientists and, and how it's possible to do field science on another planet. Um, I started my study of Mer by asking, what's it like to work with a rover? You're on Earth, and there's this machinery maybe 40 million miles away or more, and you're trying to do all of your work by programming that rover. And I discovered that it wasn't as if they were just sending programs there and taking pictures, but it was as if they were working um, inside, and, and they would talk about being on the planet. And that's when I realized that uh, when old-timers would say, well, it's the same as Viking, we're, we're still in the same building in uh, JPL in Pasadena. I said, well, the work is not occurring in Pasadena, it's occurring on, on Mars. And you can't tell that if you just look at a few photographs, but if you look at the work over time, you realize that they're surveying whole areas, they're, they're climbing hills to get a good view so they can understand the layers they sample systematically as they move over meters and meters for many kilometers, and, and they're exploring. So it's all about what the scientists are doing, and, and they're working on Mars, they're trying to figure out the, the climate and geology that developed over billions of years. One of the things in the book I thought was really interesting is that the scientists not only are, although they're here on Earth in Pasadena or wherever institution they might be, and they're in a way working on Mars, but here on Earth, is, did, I, did I get this right? They have to kind of switch to Martian time? Uh, that's right. It was in the first 90 souls or the first 90 days on Mars that uh, we kept the the two different teams in sync with the rover that they were um, tending to and working through. And that's because the rover is solar-powered, and we wanted it to work every day. So um, what would happen is the scientists would report for work, say, in mid-afternoon, uh, what we call Mars local time, the mid-afternoon for your rover, and you'd be receiving the, uh, the data that came back for the day, and you would begin a whole process of analysis and what are you going to do next and look at your plans and fill them out, so over the course then of two shifts uh, with the scientists and engineers and then another engineering shift during the night, uh, the program for the next day would be worked. And by the time the rover woke up, so to speak, uh, you know, shortly after, say, 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, Mars local time, with the sun rising, the power increasing again, uh, the rover would receive that program. So it was that cycle. You had to be living and working on the cycle of the rover itself. So uh, I guess somebody that's on Earth, since Martian days run longer, I mean, I imagine that it, it would progressively shift those scientists' days so they'd be moving, like, temporarily each day a little later than when they were the day before. Uh, that's exactly right. It's, it's on the order of about um, 40 minutes uh, longer, a Martian day. Um, 
and you know, the way we explain and think about it is that uh, from the perspective of the gatekeeper at uh, the Jet Propulsion Lab, it would look like you're reporting for work 40 minutes later every day. Um, and and that, that proceeds. And we're doing the same thing with uh, Curiosity um, right now. So the scientists that are there, a lot of them, obviously, we taught you in your book, you talk about the different disciplines they're doing and the different kind of experiments and things they're trying to work out with. But in a lot of their disciplines, that experimental, not the, the expeditionary part of it or the data collecting, in some of these disciplines, it's very much an individual effort. And you talk a little bit about in the poetry and kind of the romanticism in some disciplines about going out on your own, being by yourself, collecting the data, and hopefully making a discovery. When you get into a situation like with the Mars Exploratory Rovers, there isn't really any, it's all teamwork. So how do some of those scientists who come from some of the more, I want to say, individual disciplines in which that whole kind of the single individual out there collecting data, how are they able to adapt to, okay, well, now it isn't an individual, now you're in a collective situation where we're all working together? Well, I think you've said that very well, and it was part of my realization, it hit me, because I had seen geologists in the field and how they would scatter about and climb to a hill as quickly as possible. And so that became the second part of the story. So First was, well, how could you do field science at all on another planet? And then, well, it, it changed how you would be doing field science if you were there in person or, uh, you know, if everyone had their own rover, um, and certainly how it appeared on Earth. And, and that notion of the need to collaborate with scientists of different disciplines and, and that you're all moving together, you know, literally on, on uh, this rover over... Uh, the course of maybe uh, 100 meters in a day and taking years to climb a mountain and you have 75 scientists. So it's, it's uh, highly, um, a joint, it's a joint effort and it's public and yet it's anonymous. Uh, you're not reading that individuals are making uh, their own contributions. And, and I even chose to call it communal because they're, they're all reporting for work on the same schedule, and you don't see that in, in university labs. And, and they're all having to work in very restrictive quarters. And, and I, I was even thinking this was a lot like being on a ship, where you'd have a, a couple of different disciplines, and, and you're having to follow uh, a course and plan together where you're going to go and what you're going to do. And so all that said, uh, yeah, it's different from being out there, literally, you know, in the landscape yourself and you know, deciding where you want to go. But scientists have a lot of experience on teamwork, and uh, this is especially true, say, on expeditions. So you are living and working together in the same tents and the same schedule. Uh, you're sharing your ATVs and moving around. And, and so everyone who had been in this, uh, on the Maritime had that kind of communal experience, literally in, in expeditions, say, to a Devon Island in the Arctic or you know, dozens of other places where, where they uh, study Mars-like landscape. And, and then you realize, well, there's scientists who probably don't go out on expeditions. They, they focus on some of these instruments. They're laboratory scientists. Well, they've got lab spaces they have to share. They have very expensive instruments that they have to share. So everybody knows about compromise and fitting in with others' needs and interests, and you can't do anything you want to do at any time. And I think it was especially the um, the, the elegance of the Mer uh, design in terms of the tools and the scheduling that people got a chance uh, every couple of souls to 
put in their ideas, and uh, they deliberately uh, set up the schedule so there'd be like rotation uh, through the different disciplines to get a chance to uh, be sure that their idea, their plan, got got into the Rovers program. Were the scientists aware of? I mean, the book talks uh, goes into some detail about that question of identity that scientists have, and that in a way, although you know, in my mind, I always kind of thought of it as as a strange video game, but in that there is something operating on Mars, but you have a sense that you are the agent operating, even though you are on Earth. I, did the scientists were they self aware of when they started slipping into and I'm assu- and I know that's from the book some of them did like s- to stop seeing this as a tool and begin to like experience themselves literally through the rover I mean were they was there were there self awareness of the uh, I guess within the scientists of where they started to blur that line between who they were on Earth and who they were on Mars. <laughs> Well, uh, you're right. There is a bit of poetry in there, and, and sometimes the way they talk, you you would think it's uh, you know, blurring of identity might might be going on. But uh, one of the things that I learned is that this notion of um, being there and and um, basically seeing the place through the eyes of the rover and, and reaching over and, and manipulating things and and moving forward. Um, these had, had risen before on other missions, and um, one of the scientists told the story of uh, how on Viking, um, if you look at photographs, you'll see the scientists are, uh, some of them are like standing on their toes as, they, as they're projecting themselves into, you know, just trying to see over a rock. So I think the photography uh, lends itself to that. And, uh, and then, of course, with, with Murr, um, it becomes part of the practical work, um, and that was another um, kind of thing that, as an outsider, you go like, "Oh, of course, um, I have to know: can my arm reach that rock that's right in front of me, or how, how many steps do I have to go forward? Um, is uh, the rock that I'm looking at is it going to be well illuminated in the morning when um, I'm planning to take a photograph, or should I wait till the afternoon? Um, and you know, if I turn around, what can I reach? The, what's behind me? What what is behind me? And so you know, when we as the people who aren't on the team, when we look at photographs, we don't think in those terms. But if you're the rover and you're you, you are the rover is your surrogate body. You need to know what's around you and, and where you can move. You just don't start moving. You have to have all that mapped out and thought out. And so that was essential for the scientists and the engineers uh, to keep the rover alive and, and just even to think about what could I do next. So we've been talking about the scientists, the men and women who are there at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory who are using the MER to increase mankind's knowledge. Those aren't the only people there. Uh, they're the engineers who are actually trying to make sure that this machine is operating at peak efficiency. Could you talk about the relationship between the scientist whose real goal is gathering information and data and processing it, and the engineers who are just trying to make sure that this machine is operating at, at I guess, premium capacity? Well, I think, I think everyone certainly understands on the team what NASA's mission is, and it's science. So everything that's done is in the name of, of the scientific mission. And it, it became and it's very clear, like if you look at the Curiosity uh, videos, the landing of the Mars Science Laboratory, the engineers take a lot of pride in what they're able to accomplish 
um, in doing what the scientists want. So we saw Curiosity getting it to land so well in front of Mount Sharp. So we are perfectly positioned, incredibly uh, accurate uh, landing there. And so they they have very different responsibilities, and I think that's the best way to put it. Uh, you know, we're talking about people who are Caltech employees, uh, many of which, uh, many of whom have uh, PhDs. You're talking about computer scientists who might have been artificial intelligence researchers. So these are not very different um, fields, different kinds of people by by any means. And so we see a lot of um, sharing of ideas. Uh, engineers maybe telling a scientist that, hey, you know, I can get a good uh, picture over there. We could apply the spectrometer uh, very well to that, uh, to that surface. Um, you know, we have time today to do this, and I know that you're interested in this or that. Uh, some of them have been working together for eight years. Uh, so they know a lot about each other's um, interests. And, and uh, there's some neat stories of where the engineers made suggestions that turned out to be important uh, scientifically. Um, I think speak for the other side, it's, there's a lot of negotiation, and that's the word that was brought up. Um, the, sci the scientists are thinking in terms of their study. The engineers are thinking in terms of a lot of dry things. Um, how much power are we going to have tomorrow? How much dust is there that's going to affect how the batteries uh, recharge tomorrow? Um, we're going to drive. How is that different in its power usage versus applying this very uh, energy-intensive uh, instrument to, uh, to analyze the iron in, in this region? Um, they have bandwidth problems, which is to say there's a lot of data, all these photographs, uh, to be transmitted, and it takes time to uh, pass them through that pipeline. And you have different ways of getting the data back, either a, a direct-to-earth uh, antenna that's mounted on the uh, rover, and we have that for Curiosity as well, or by relay, and we've been using uh, especially uh, the Odyssey. Uh, so they, they have a lot of logistics, and you put the logistics up against uh, something like, uh, well, we want to move over there and do this or that, and you can see there's uh, two different levels that, that have to be mapped in a lot of discussions that they go through. So finally, um, you know, during... So finally, sometimes we hear about uh, the need to put man or women, or basically humans, on Mars. And I can understand the appeal from, again, going back to kind of a poetic thing, that we are humans out there exploring space. But really, from a purely scientific point of view, given the technical advances that we can do with the with the MERS and the fact that scientists are able in some ways to kind of lose themselves in the process of exploring around Mars. From a science, scientific point of view, does it really make any sense to send humans or can machines really do everything that a human scientist could do? Well, I think our experience with MERS is probably leading us to ask that question more than ever before. And as we see what Curiosity is going to be able to do over the next couple of years, climbing uh, Mount Sharp and Gale Crater, as we climb that, uh, that mountain and, and study it, the question keeps now is what aspects of field science um, can't be done remotely from Earth? And I look at that in a lot of detail in the uh, last chapter of, of working on Mars. 
And it became, in many ways, I think the most important question of the book. So what do we learn? What did we learn here about designing future rovers and, and thinking about the exploration of, uh, of Mars overall? And um, at the bottom line is that uh, these robotic systems, our, our ability to design instruments and uh, operate them remotely, remember, no, no repairs possible over, over these years, uh, it's going to have to get a lot better to satisfy both the engineers and the scientists. And the first big surprise for me is hearing that um, these instruments are not nearly as good as what we have on Earth. And they're, they're very small. They're lightweight. They're, they're meant to deal with huge temperature variations and vibration over maybe a decade. And um, the instruments on Earth allow us to do very different analyses with a lot more precision. And so that's why we talked about sample return. We've got to bring the samples back. So that's a really fundamental notion that isn't first obvious if you're not a scientist and, and thinking about what it is you want to do. Um, and there's, there's a lot of question of how far we can get and with being able to deliver uh, heavier uh, payloads or these, uh, it's the, the term we use for these spacecraft and the instruments. But what we're starting to see is that the time to develop these missions, and MSL is, is a good example, is creeping up to, um, you know, MSL's been underway for 10 years, and, and we're going to be, it's over $2 billion. We're going to be moving into tens of billions of dollars. And at some point, you're starting to hit up against uh, human mission costs and the time. So if it's 20 years to get a sample return and 20 years to get a person on the ground, uh, the scientists have, by and large, the same answer. I don't want to wait, you know, 30 or 40 years. I, I want to get the answers during my lifetime. Um, and um, so if that means taking a greater risk and sending people and it costs a little bit more, um, let's do that. But, but really, so what it turns out, it's, it's not going to be a scientific issue, I think, or even uh, an engineering issue, but it's going to be a matter of... Uh, motivation. And, you know, if another country has astronauts living on Mars, they're not just not going to sit back and, at home and, and control robots from our laptops. We're, we're going to want to be there. And it's a, uh, people are going to be leaving and, and going to Mars eventually. So uh, these things are going to work themselves out and, and it's going to be a matter of what do we do in the next 10 years, 20 years. But as we look out over maybe not even very long time periods. It's going to be people who are exploring the surface, and uh, the robots are going to be right there with us. William Clancy, the author of Working on Mars, Voyages of Scientific Discovery with the Mars Exploration Rovers. Thanks so much for being on the MIT Press Podcast today. Oh, it's my pleasure. Very good questions. I appreciate it. For more information about this and other titles, please visit our website at mitpress.mit.edu. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash mitpress, or you can follow us on Twitter, where we are at mitpress. Thanks for listening to this episode of the MIT Press Podcast. Copyright 2012, the MIT Press, all rights reserved.